Now, this story that we're going to get to here in a second, this story from John narrates kind of the first act of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. But what, what is so cool is that in each of the four Gospels, we see four different acts of ministry that serve as Jesus' first act of ministry in that particular Gospel. So if you really want to just kind of just be a jerk and, and trick somebody, say, hey, what was Jesus' first act of public ministry? And then they give you the answer, no, nah, there were three others. Just a mess with them. I'm just, I'm, okay, anyway. But, but the different acts that we see in each of the different Gospels provide clues as to who, how that author sees Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus' first public act of ministry comes in the Sermon on the Mount. In Mark, he does an exorcism. In Luke, Jesus returns to his hometown. And in John, he turns water into wine. So naturally, we look at John and go, what? But we're interested, right? Why, why would Jesus do this? Because we all know the, the, the what we used to call this, the... Uh, the assumptions we make when we think when we read this text, right? Oh, he turned water into wine. Uh-oh. But, but I want to invite you to, to let yourself just hear the text. Because in this text, there are so many things that can grab you. Because that's one of the things about John. He is very theological. And some of his stuff, when you're reading it, you feel like you're kind of reading poetry. It's, very, it's got a very majestic feel to it sometimes. Because John was so intent on convincing people, hey, this is your Messiah. And there's a lot of theological stuff going on with that. So so as I'm reading this to you, I want you to think about what grabs you. Because there are so many things in this this text that can grab you. So we're going to be in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And again, think about what grabs you here. Alright, so the text begins... On the third day. That's kind of important in scripture, right? That, that can grab you, right? This idea of on the third day. Why would John put that in there? On the third day. We know the third day is a big deal when it comes to Jesus, okay? So, so that's something that could grab you. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Okay, so, so that might grab you, right? Jesus... Jesus' mom is at a wedding. So, so perhaps this is a, a friend of the family, maybe. And so, so you see that, and you think, okay, so what's significant about his mother being there? Well, in John, you should know that the mother of Jesus only appears twice. First at the wedding at Cana, his first public act of ministry. And then the second time she appears is at the foot of the cross. The end of his public ministry. So maybe that grabs you. And so as you're reading this, you're thinking about Jesus' mother. Well, then verse 2 tells us Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Okay. Okay, so maybe we're going, all right, well, why were they invited to the wedding? And then we see in verse 3, the wine gives out. And the mother of Jesus says to Jesus, Jesus, they have no wine. So then we could could wonder, okay, if Jesus' mom is hinting to him, 
Maybe she's thinking Jesus can do something. So, so maybe we're looking at this text and we're going. Maybe Jesus' mom looks at him and goes, Son, you have the power. I've seen it. Keep this party going. So we're thinking, okay, well, maybe this is about Mary knows something about the divinity of Jesus. And so maybe she's ushering people into that. Maybe that's a possibility. And then in verse 4, Jesus says to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. I'm going to be honest, if I ever talk to my mom like that, <laughs> it's not going to be good. So we could camp out on the theological implications of this. We could sit here and go, his hour has not yet come. Wow, what's that about? Or we could talk about how Jesus addresses his earthly mother and the fact that he sees Mary as his earthly mother but yet he sees God as his heavenly father. And so maybe there's like a, a, a system in place here where you got like God and then Mary. I don't, I don't We could talk about that. And then in verse 5 it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. So again, we can come back to this fact that maybe Mary knows something about Jesus. So then we get to verse 6 and they're out of, they're out of wine. And we see in verse 6, now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Each jar held 20 to 30 gallons. So you're talking about these six jars that can hold anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water. This isn't just water. This is purified water. This is Brita filtered water before they had Brita or filters. That's what this is. And this was there because for the Jews, they had this act of always cleaning things before they ate. So maybe you're going, okay, well, John throws this in there because maybe he's trying to tell us something about Jesus related to the Jews. Maybe he's doing that. How many of y'all at this point are so confused going, there's so much going on here? Yeah, it's a lot going on. That's okay. And then verse 7, Jesus says to them, fill the jars with water. And they fill them up to the brim. Okay. So then we're reading this and we're going, well, they fill the water up, they fill the jars with water to the brim. Okay, the jars were empty. They put brand new purified water in them. Okay, so this is new water to them to bring him new water. Okay, he's setting us up for something. Okay, I'm with you, Jesus. So then in verse 8, Jesus says to them, now draw some out. And take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, the steward did not know where it came from. Although the servants who had drawn the water knew. And so the steward calls over the bridegroom. And in verse 10, he says to the bridegroom, Everyone serves the good stuff first. Actually says good wine. The good wine first. And then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. What? So then we're reading this and we're going, okay. So maybe this has nothing to do with Mary. Maybe this has nothing to do with third day. Maybe this has nothing to do with other stuff. Maybe this has to do with the fact that the good wine comes at the end. So as we're looking at this, we could think about how, how when we repent and follow Christ, the good stuff comes at the end. How he takes what we think is something great and he makes it even better. How, how the world says life then death, but how Jesus says death and life. 
Maybe we could talk about how the gospel says the good stuff comes to the faithful who stay for the whole party. We could talk about that. Or we could talk about this in verse 11. We could talk about this. Jesus did this. The first of his signs. And revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We can talk about this. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Because we we should remember that the miracles that Jesus performs, these miracles that Jesus performs in John's gospel, they're never called miracles. We call them miracles. John calls them signs. So in other words, the miracle itself is not really what we're supposed to see. As miraculous as it is, Jesus performs a miracle, reveals his glory, and his disciples believe. But to John, Jesus gives a sign. Now, I don't know what you think about signs, right? You think about signs out there in the world, you got road signs, right? They tell you where to go, they tell you slow down, turn around, speed up. Go faster, go slower, or something up ahead. You know, I, I grew up with baseball signs. They're there to confuse certain people, but to be really clear to others and to tell them what to do. Then you think about church signs and what they tell people. Some are funny, some are just embarrassing. Some tell you what's going on in that church. So we have all these different signs and what signs exist to do, right? Signs point us. To something. Signs tell us something. And so the miracles in John, they're signs. They're signs that point to a truer revelation about Jesus. They are signs that, that invite us to wonder what is the deeper reality that's going on here? What, what is Jesus revealing? What are we supposed to see about Jesus here? What are we supposed to see about us? See, miracles are signs of God's glory. They exist to remind people of God's glory. Because we talk about that during during Christmas. As we get to Christmas Eve and the Sundays after Christmas, there's no physical manger anymore. We can't walk to a manger. We can't see this physical baby. So part of the church growing is the growing witness of the church. It's the growing number of people who continue to testify to God's glory and to God's work in their life. So we should remember that the miracles Jesus performs in John's gospel are never called miracles but are called signs. So in other words, the, the miracle itself is not really what we are supposed to see as miraculous as, as it is. And so if a miracle is a sign of divine transformation, then if a miracle is a sign of divine transformation, then then maybe your story, maybe your past, maybe your transformation, maybe your growth, maybe your rescue story, maybe your comeback story is a miracle that God is using as a sign to point people 
to a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. And the thing about miracles, the thing about signs, we need to point them out. Because here's the thing, you are a sign of God's power, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love. You are a sign of that. Your life is a sign. Your life is a witness that points people to who God is and to what his heart is about. But I know, I know, I know because I talk to people who share their stories. And there are people who tell me that that I recognize this. There's a stream of thought that goes, miracles are for other people. They don't happen to me. That's, That's for somebody. I've lived a pretty good life. I don't have a mountaintop story where I was crushed and God rescued me. And I have this... People think... I don't have a sensational story, so that's not, I don't have one. People think that miracles only happen in sensational ways, and so I don't have a miracle to point out. (laughs) You couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong, because when you surrender your life, all of your life to the will of God, and you make your day, and you make your life your choices, your perspective available to be transformed by the Spirit of God, you begin to see things differently. And others began to see things through you differently. Because your life becomes a sign that points to the the miracle of divine transformation. That last verse we read from John chapter 2 verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs... And revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus performed a miracle. He gave a sign. He revealed his glory through that sign. And his disciples believed in him. See, I got to tell you this. that some of you, some of you know, I had knee surgery the day before Christmas Eve. So I was laid up for about seven to nine days. Couldn't really do a lot. My wife took care of two babies who couldn't walk for seven to nine days, so she's a saint. But I couldn't do anything but sit around. And so I just read for seven days. I just read. I was pumping through these two, like 500 some pages, and they weren't pictures either. It was crazy. So I read, and I finally had time to reflect on what my last year had been like. Because 2015 for me was something else. I mean, I became a father. That's kind of big. I completed work to be commissioned as a provisional elder in the United Methodist Church. And when you do that, you write about 100 pages of academic writing. And then you get to go sit in front of people who ask you really smart questions. And to be honest with you, it makes you feel really dumb. And they pick at you for two hours. I did that twice because I went the first time, passed three out of four, had to go back to do the fourth one. So I got picked at twice. So, so I had that happen to me. And then, so then I'm also growing into being a father. And we've been married, we've been married for, for like two years by then. So Laura and I are growing in our marriage. So all that going on. And then I started something called CPE. Which actually stands for Clinical Pastoral Education. It's something all pastors in the United Methodist Church have to do before they become ordained. And what CPE is is you are required to spend 100 hours with a group. Basically, it's kind of like a chaplaincy internship. And so I drove to Palmetto Richland Hospital in Columbia every Tuesday in the fall. And so you had to spend 100 hours of group time together. We would do didactics. We would do reflections. We would sit there 
And, and it got to where they built this trust in the group where it, was, it became okay for, them, for us to pick at each other. So again, I'm back in another group where I'm getting picked at like a Thanksgiving turkey. So we're doing that. We also had to log 300 hours in a hospital doing chaplaincy work. And 300, in 300 of those hours, I had to do six on-calls, six 18-hour overnight shifts in a hospital that has a trauma unit. And so I got called to three things when I was on call. One was a code blue. A code blue in this hospital was when somebody was being resuscitated. I saw, that was the most things I got called to. I saw double digits code blue. And I saw two people surviving. And so then I had to sit there and watch all these code blues. And then I was the person the family met with. The second thing I had to respond to were death calls in the hospital. So again, I was often the first person who would talk to the family. This person who I've never met before has passed away. And then the third thing in the hospital I would respond to were trauma calls. And my first night on call, within the, it was my fourth hour being there, I got called to the trauma unit for a gunshot wound. And then five minutes later, another one rolled in. A minute later, another one rolled in. And 10 minutes after that, another one rolled in. So within 20 minutes of my first call of the trauma unit, we had four gunshot wounds come in. And they were all criminally related. They had to lock down the ER. All the family had to stay outside in the parking lot. And guess who got sent to go see these family who just had their four sons, brothers, and friends be involved in a shootout? Your local chaplaincy intern. So I go through all that. And so that's what CPE was like, is it wrecks you. And so in this year of being a father and then being commissioned and going through all that and then doing CPE, I had a lot happen to me, a lot of transformation. I had a lot of sitting in front of people and getting picked apart in 2015. That'll break you down. That'll humble you. But in that getting picked apart, there was a lot of transformation that was also happening in my life. And so then at the end of this being laid up, I just got really bored at some point and started looking up things. And there's an author called John Gordon, and he did this thing called One Word. And so I told Lauren, I was like, Lauren, can we do this one word thing for 2016? And so what this John Gordon thing does is is you pray about what is that thing God's putting on your heart in 2016. And I kind of talked about it in Life Song last week. But one word is what is that one word for you in 2016 that you filter everything through? And and for me, it came down to Romans 7, 6. God is doing a new thing through the Holy Spirit. And so after all of 2015, after all we had kind of processed and been through, my word was new. Because after 2015, everything I'd been through, the word that kept popping up was new. And so while I was out, I read a book called Interrupted by this lady named Jen Hatmaker. And in her book, Hatmaker writes that throughout Scripture... She was going through a time of her life where where she begins to notice this liberal use of the word new all throughout Scripture. And particularly, particularly, this word new shows up a lot when Jesus hits the scene. And and Hatmaker writes that in her life at that time, the concept of new was hitting really close to home. So she dug in. 
(laughs) And I dug in too. So she talks about how in Scripture you see new wine has to be poured into new wineskins. The kingdom of heaven is a storehouse of not just old treasures, but new ones. Jesus rolls out a whole new teaching. We have a new and a different life linked to the way Jesus lived and died. We're supposed to be serving in a new way through the Spirit. And part of our salvation is having a new attitude about things. Because when God transforms us, we want to transform the world around us. And so Hatmaker had my attention. So when we point out the miracle... When we live as people transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, we point to something new in the world. And so this is where I am today. I am the product of a new work from the Spirit. And where I am today and where I would love for you to be is that I dream of a fellowship of believers that is once again called great, even by our skeptics. Because our lives point to something so full of grace, so full of mercy, so full of love, so full of hope. That even those who want to challenge our faith cannot challenge us based on how it has changed us. I want no part in a movement that is deemed great because we've adopted some exceptional qualities admired by the top. I want to be a part of a movement that is deemed great because we become living miracles, living signs to something irresistible. Hatmaker wrote some more. She said, what makes the gospel good news isn't the concept, but the real life person who has been changed by the gospel. So how much more tangible is the gospel when someone experiences it over weeks And months with a real believer whom he or she can ask questions of and learn from by observation. Jesus performed a miracle, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed. You are the miracle. You are the sign. You are the chosen vessel of God in 2016 to point people to his glory. This is why the local church matters. We are the appointed group of people that God has set apart to carry his light in 2016. And because you are faithful to your witness, others will come to believe in the good news of Jesus because they have witnessed it in your your life. It's easy to argue ideas. It's easy to debate concepts. It is almost impossible to deny what you see, hear, and experience. And maybe one day when someone points out their miracle, when they tell their story, maybe they will share of how they saw something in you. How you pointed them to a new thing, a new way of life, a new creation, a new birth. So I want to invite you to do what I'm going to be inviting you to do from here on out. I want you to embrace your story. I want you to sing your song. And I want you to praise your Savior all the day long. 
And I pray that our worship will be even louder than the songs we sing. Praise be to God. Amen.